the Arts Explanatory Comma Podcast, where art meets the real world, and both sides get a better understanding of the whole picture. This podcast may contain strong language, and listener discretion is advised. Professor, artist, curator, public speaker are all currently titles that can be used to describe our guest today. I met her on the heels of her participation in round 28 of Project Row Houses, where gigantic reimagined album covers included her as a member of De La Soul or as a member on the cover of the Roots Tipping Point album. And her as Erica Badu on the cover of Mama's Gun. <laughs> This all let me know that I was in the presence of a kindred spirit musically. Upon hearing her speak and talking to her, I became a real admirer of her work and her spirit. I am happy to be in the presence again and introduce Raquel and the rest of you all to her, Miss Rebea Bailly. Thank you. You did your research. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a good memory. It's been like, it was like 2008. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that year stuck out to me because my brother had passed that year. Oh. That January. And then talking to you and Phil during that helped solidify me going back to school for art. Oh, oh, so, did you? You yeah, weren't in school then. I was you went, not. Ah. I hadn't. I hadn't made any art in eight years at that time. Actually, oh six God. years at that time. So I didn't go back to school till 2010. But yeah, <laughs> so that that sticks in my mind. That's awesome. All the time. So, first question for you. <laughs> is what's your earliest memory of your connection to art when did you know you were an artist or that you wanted to be an artist I know the exact moment it wasn't really that early it was in the seventh grade and prior to that you know I was just like every other kid that loved to had markers and crayons and things like that and I was really into fashion drawing clothes mm -hmm. I didn't want to be a fashion designer I just like drawing <laughs> them you know but it was in seventh grade <clears throat> Where I saw the, so we had art as an elective and half of the class got to take it in the first half of the school year and I had to take uh, homemaking. Is that what it's called? Homemaking? Yeah. And then, which I hated. <laughs> and then the second half, I, you know, so the students were coming in and they had this bowl of grapes that they, that everyone draws the same thing. Yeah. that kind of situation. Yeah. And this, uh, Jennifer, a friend of mine, she had her bowl of grapes and looked awesome. And I was jealous. <laughs> I was jealous of her being able to do that. But I also at the same time told myself, I can do that. And I, I, I'm going to draw those grapes. And I did. And that was sort of when I became aware of art as a thing to create and make. And yeah. So seventh grade art class. <laughs> Thanks, Mrs. Um, can't think of her name. Johnson. Miss Johnson. There you go. I was just about to ask if you remember the art <laughs> teacher's name. Yeah. That's funny. So of all the roles that Mark went over, we know you're a curator, an artist, an educator. Who do you define yourself as outside of those roles? Like, who is Rabia? Outside of those roles? Yes. Yeah. Oh, music lover. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's hard because I can't really separate myself from all those things. I was fortunate enough to be able to have a lifestyle that I can 
do all the things I've wanted to do. I've kind of known pretty early on mm -hmm. that I wanted to enter this field. I didn't quite know how, I didn't know when, but I, I just, I guess artists would be the one I have the most connection to, just the, the actual maker of things. But outside of that, um, it's hard to think of myself outside of that. Just pretty boring, <laughs> normal. I juice. <laughs> I, um, I music lover would be the one I would add outside of that because it's been from the beginning even more so than art a huge influence on my life. So, which one of your roles do you enjoy the most? Depends on which day of the week. <laughs> um, always the one that's going to be the most enjoyable and the most important to me is when I can make things. So as an artist. But I, recently, as a curator, I liked that switch. So I had to vacillate between them in order to feel like a nice balance. Obviously, I have to provide for myself. So being an educator is a blessing and it's really important. I recently just... Um, became the chair of the art department at nice. where I teach. It hasn't even really even set in yet because I start in August, but I was just that manifested this summer. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to new challenges, you know, in that field and the opportunities I can give other instructors, you know, jobs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because so many of us as artists, um, we, it's hard to support ourselves just on our work. And so we have to have secular jobs or other jobs to manage the rest of our life. And teaching is that avenue where it, it all kinds of comes together. So, How do you juggle it all? <laughs> um, I have like about two calendars right here, daily planners, <laughs> but I'll tell you exactly. I, um, I have a routine. I have a, a routine that I actually had help with. And so um, one of the, the goals that I had for myself is to come up with a a morning routine so that I just wasn't getting up in the morning and just running out of the house, mm -hmm. like throwing on clothes and heading to work without that me time. Yeah. And so fairly recently, like, I guess this year primarily, it's like a gift I gave to myself. I was like, I'm going to really sit down and, and focus um, on how to juggle everything and not feel like I'm all over the place. Like ever since Harvey, for some reason, and we've had tons of storms and Harvey mm -hmm. didn't even affect my house the way other storms have. You know, my garage was flooded and that was the, the impetus for this work that you see here. You know, it's just dealing with disaster. But something about Harvey and its impact, it, it left me really scatterbrained. It was, you know, Everyone was fearful. Yeah. <laughs> it was just such a scary event. And I was, it was stuck out of town. It was crazy trying to get, get back here. And, um, what, what were we saying? How do you juggle it? Oh, how do we, yeah, I've got, um, <laughs> planning. <laughs> Plan, planning. I make sure that, you know, I wasn't even at one point wasn't eating regularly. So you mentioned like, I have a timer on my watch. It tells me when to eat. So like planning for the week ahead one day a week and scheduling everything so that like when you call and say, do you have time to do this? I know exactly yeah. when rather than just feeling scrambled, like taking control and being really organized is the only way that I can juggle it all. And it took, it took some time. Getting older helps. Yeah. <laughs> Once you turn 40, you're like, nope, I'm not doing that. And you kind of prioritize things. You take a lot more time for yourself that you that need power when you're no. younger. Yeah. When you're younger, like in my 20s and 30s, it was a blur. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how I organize it all. <laughs> I'm in the process of trying to organize my life. Yeah, it takes along with the, the figuring it out, but I'm, I've yeah. got time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a yeah. great time because you can do anything. Yeah. And yeah. there's no expectation to like have to, like you're testing the waters. You should be doing that. You should be figuring it out. Try everything. Yeah. At 35, though, I feel like I really should have a better handle in life. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like I really That's should. That's so subjective. Like, what is, yeah. It is, but... Eh, it's scary some days. I mean, at 45, <laughs> I feel like I should have a better handle on my life, but we're all, we're doing it. We're trying to do what we can, right? This is absolutely true. So I know you to be an interdisciplinary artist, but what does that mean? Can you define that for our listeners? Because as the Explanatory Comma Podcast, we want to make sure we're taking time to explain things to people who may not know. So... um. I don't just do one thing, I guess would be a good, good answer. Um, gosh, it threw me for a little <laughs> Well, because I think... When- I asked because when we looked you up, I was like, what does interdisciplinary yeah. artist mean? Like, I remember in undergrad, it meant the people who hadn't declared a major, but I never thought of it as a concept... Yeah, as an artist and I was like is it mixed media so when somebody I've never defined myself as interdisciplinary and that I think that's kind of an interesting question to ask because I a lot of times I'm still just figuring it out Mm -hmm. for example I don't consider myself a photographer that perhaps one who studies photography does okay and so I'm not a purist in that sense and what that allows me to do is experiment without feeling like I have to follow the rules, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I delve in like printmaking, uh, photography, whether it's digital or traditional black and white photography, which I've done, but not in a while. And then also painting and also drawing. And so it's like my focus isn't just on one particular thing. And I thought that was a bad thing at first. Like when I was coming through graduate school, I felt like I was all over the place. Like from when I would work with one subject that I was working on to the next, the materials would all change. Mm -hmm. And again, I thought, man, you know, like this guy over here across the hall from me, he's got it down. He's been doing the same thing and just kind of, you know, getting better at this one way of making art. And I see this consistency. And I've been told by my mentors, you know, that you can't jump all over the place because then your audience is not going to understand what what you're doing. And I'm just not that person. Mm -hmm. And it was one of my professors that was like, when I walk in your studio, I know exactly what Rebea has done. Like it all connects when yeah. it's all sort of placed yeah. side by side. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to be okay with that. Cause I, I don't know why do I, did I feel like I needed to have everything look the same or be out of the same material or, you know, I'm really good at drawing. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know I had permission to make conceptual work. Well, I think you're, well, first of all, let me say you're speaking to the soul of me because <laughs> I jump all over the place. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the people in my life like to say, you got to focus on gotta one focus. thing and make that perfect. And I'm thinking to myself like, yeah, that worked for some artists, but other artists that didn't, it, it, that that's not their thing. Yeah. Like I love drawing. I love photography. Why yeah. can't I do both? Why? Like, why, why do I have to focus on one? And I think the way that I like to define interdisciplinary art is kind of like a, 
like a toolbox, right? Yeah. You're pulling out the right tool for conveying whatever message it is that you want to That's use. That's it. That is, <laughs> you solved the mystery. That is it. And <laughs> once I was told that, you know, the subject matter will dictate the medium. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, you can't force. And I'll give you an example. When I was working on my thesis exhibit, actually, mm -hmm. and the subject I was working on was one first time objects. Yeah. And I, I just because I'm a collector of things, I document things. So yeah. I had and I was going through like scrapbooks and whatever record collection or tape collection at the time that I had. And I discovered, oh, wow, that's my first driver's license. And oh, this is the the um, I'll give you another example. Oh, my first concert ticket. Yeah. I found that. So I had this whole collection of firsts first time objects mm -hmm. right and then my first love was music so that's how i integrated the music but then i thought i have to draw these things because yeah. i'm in art school mm -hmm. and i just spent three years of my life drawing and, and painting and this was at the very very end of it and someone suggested well rachel hecker my former professor was like just show the objects and I was like, just show the because I had like the the cap of my first forty ounce, <laughs> and I kept Eight the bottle ball. cap, yeah. <laughs> and I was gonna draw it, and I, I had like yeah, like movie tickets and all the significant these significant yeah. events in my life that marked the first time I did something. Yeah. Um, and I thought that you know I needed to, well, now I got to turn these into something, yeah. you know, because I'm a painter or you know I, I draw, and it just didn't work. And I don't know why I needed her permission, but that was a very significant moment. And it just sort of, it just, I guess, just changed my career yeah. path or for myself, my art making path. Because then I saw conceptual art very differently and yeah. I saw objects very differently. Yeah. And then I gave myself permission. And again, I'm frustrated that, you know, I'm a grown woman. Why do I need permission to do anything? But sometimes yeah. it just takes someone to suggest something that someone that you trust. And they said, um, <clears throat> Just show the objects. They're specimens. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Yeah. And so I, I did that. You know, I had drawings as well, but I had this whole section of these specimen boxes. It was 23 of them, my favorite number. And it just contained these specimens. And when the audience came in to look at it, they were like, oh, I remember my first concert. It wasn't New Kids on the Block. I'm embarrassed to say that was it. <laughs> it wasn't New Kids on the Block, but it was like, whatever. Yeah. You know? Or yeah, I remember my first driver's license. I had paint chip for my first car wreck. It was all this weird <laughs> stuff that I collected. So yeah, it's like the subject will dictate yeah. often enough how it's made. And if some, this is the images you're looking at behind you that are photo based, I was just putting them together because I wanted to um, collage imagery to make drawings. And then I, I was like, well, do they have do they have to become drawings because you know that's my thing or can they rely on just photo collages and would that work yeah so you know it's it yeah. changes you do yeah. whatever you want to do yeah you have to okay so i'm definitely not going to follow where we plan mm -hmm. but i feel like you just spoke to all the young artists out there and i mean young in their career because we know mm -hmm. some people don't don't pick up the materials till they're 30 40 50 60 um because i think one thing that you said that i was thinking and it was beautiful that it matched up that way you have to give yourself permission yeah you have to give yourself permission to be 
whatever you are and do the things that you want to do as an artist. You do and you don't. We're talking about having to give ourselves permission to do yeah. things. Yeah. I'm envious of people that don't. So I just want to be very clear that I have to do that, yeah. you know, and you, because we have the same, I guess, a similar personality in that aspect, yeah. you know, and, and less so as I've gotten, I don't keep wanting, wanting to say older, but maybe more mature in just my own thought process where <laughs> when I was a younger artist, I kind of needed more permission and now I get it. I get it yeah. now that like, okay, I can, I can really do whatever I want to and, ex and experiment yeah. with whatever. But early on, it, I just didn't know that you were allowed to. Like, yeah. I thought you had to like be just one discipline. Yeah. It just, for whatever reason, where I was at at the time, yeah. I just, it just never occurred to me. And now I'm just like, it, I, I always go back to that. Like you, the, the work will dictate the medium yeah. quite often. And so why should you, be stuck to just doing one thing if that's not who you are. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. Um, I think for where I am and possibly a whole lot of other people, it's that you've done something and it probably needed to be workshopped a little bit, but you know it was dope. Yeah. Like you know, you know you should have pressed on, but you let somebody else kind of dim your light in that situation, in that moment. And that's when you have to give yourself that permission to go outside of sometimes it's your familiar group. Sometimes it's, you know, if you're in an artist collective or you're just a group of friends, sometimes you have to go outside of that and you have to trust yourself to do so, to know that what you have holds enough value in order for you to invest more time, more energy and really work through that thought. So yeah, that like you saying that like really, really spoke to me and yeah. it's, you know, it, it's something that I need to do more. I have tons of work sitting at home that's either started, well, finished, not shown. Like it's <laughs> the expert was once a beginner. Mm -hmm. I yes. wish I had made that up, but you know, <laughs> I, I think about that because, and that's kind of the beauty of not knowing how to do something and just kind of playing. That's why the the printmaking collective that I'm in, Rue. Um, there, you know, other than Delita, who's a, a purist printmaker and very traditional in her methodology, the rest of us are all over the place. Mm -hmm. And that's why we like to work together. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, Lovey works with plaster and that's a non-traditional material to work with printmaking and prints on cucumbers and, and different kinds of foods. <laughs> and then I'm the spaz. Every every show that we have, it's, a, it's either silk screening or it, may, it might be lithography one year or just like stamping with my hand or like printing with my inkjet printer and just coming up with other ways of printmaking. It's because, you know, it's just like in, in one sense, I have a little bit of freedom in not knowing exactly what I'm doing. Um, and so it's, you know, it opened up that opportunity yeah. to experiment and explore. Can you talk a little bit more? I, I wanted to ask you about Rue because I know y'all do shows very sporadically, but can you talk a little bit about who and what Rue is? Yeah, definitely. So a few years ago, well, it's, it's actually been, I think, close to 11 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Lovey and Ann came to me. They had gotten a proposal rejected where they had proposed a, a woman show women printmakers and you know good things come out of rejection if there's one thing that i would would tell a younger audience is that rejection although it hurts and it feels bad and sometimes it's embarrassing 
and it can be sort of like a kick to the head. Rejection is important um, because out of rejection comes a different idea. Like, okay, this didn't work, so now I have to do this. And that's how Rue was born. Because of the rejection, they decided to just make the collective themselves and put on the show themselves. So they, they approached Jalita, they approached myself. And I actually, in undergrad, was interested in printmaking. And I applied to printmaking as a grad, as just my concentration at LSU. And I got rejected. Mm. I was like, I didn't want them anyway. <laughs> they didn't spell my name right when they got, when I got my rejection letter back. So I was like, really? So, you know, if it wasn't for that rejection, I wouldn't be here right now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have never come to Houston. Mm. Yeah. But I chose the University of Houston for various reasons, but one of them being they had a, a press, a printing press. And Kathy Hunt was teaching printmaking mm. at the time. And so I, I had this mild interest in printmaking, but not a concentration. And so this is, and plus this is many, many years later. But I was like, you know what? Like, let, let's try it. And Levy and I were very opposed to forming a collective and also putting a name to it because we just, yeah. we like our freedom. Can and, I ask? Yes. This is, this is my dumb art question. What's the purpose of an art collective? Like, so what is it? A co- basically, like a team. Okay. Yeah, it's sort of like um, four artists that come together and kind of represent as one entity. Mm-hmm. So we call ourselves Rue, but individually we have our careers that are separate and apart from Rue. So we come together as a collective and we show as Rue, not as individuals. Okay. Thank you. For that. Yeah, good, great <laughs> question. Thank you. Yeah, so um, so Levy and I were like, no, we don't want to form a collective because we don't want to have to be part of a group because sometimes a group dynamic can get complicated. Put four women together and you don't know what what might happen. But our first exhibit, it was just we worked so well together. Mm-hmm. In that we didn't work together, but the work worked well together. So it's not like we sat around and was like, what are you going to do for this? And what, you know, we, we had conversations, but we had no idea visually exactly what everybody's work would look like. And we didn't say, so your work has to be about one particular theme. So we all kind of branched off a little bit and did our own thing. I was researching Marie Therese, which, which is, um, a woman from the Natchitoches area in Louisiana who um, bought the freedom of from all of her children for all of her children, wow. and was sort of the precursor to the story of Plassage that led to later works, and um, I forget now what everyone else was doing at the time, but when we came together and showed, it just was like magic. It was it was so nice, yeah. and so with print matters it it usually happens in the summertime and Anne was the the only um black member of print matters and one of the founding members of print matters which is a printmaking collective here locally and so she wanted to expand and add more women of color into the mix and so that's how you know she asked me if i wanted to join and so the next summer we were like let's let's do let's do print matters again and then after the third year, and so we found a space and we did another exhibit and it worked out beautifully again. We communicated, but we didn't really like influence exactly what our work had to be about. And then we just started being called the Rue, like the Rue girls, because we were still against like, oh, I don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want this group thing. I don't want a name. And, and, and it just sort of very, very organically turned into one of the, most proud things that I've been associated with. 
Yeah. I remember seeing the show that y'all did at HMAC, Houston Museum of African American Culture. That was the first one. Yeah. Yeah. That was, was the first exhibit at HMAC. Yeah. 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 It was, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, it's, I, I think I would like to see more of Rue. I think now, I think it was, it's good to have the explanation here for our audience so that they can familiarize themselves with Rue because I think, well, not I think, I know, just like most people in the art industry know, it's dominated by white men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so women of color, that's that double minority. Yeah. Um, and not a lot of printmakers. Yeah. Yeah. So all of those things together, especially right now, I think the world is primed to see more work from women in various industries and we need it. I think it, it adds, I think the, the idiotic thought is, Oh yeah, it'll add a level of femininity to art. No, it adds a level of dynamism because everything that exists in the world exists in women (laughs) and there are different perspectives, different ideas, different ways of, of, of presenting some of the same ideas that we've seen. So I think, I think it's great for people to hear about Root as much as they possibly can. <laughs> Thank you. We've been supported so well. Um, people usually always look forward to what we have coming up next. Um, we, I don't think Print Matters is happening this summer. They change it to every two years now. So we have this summer, we didn't do a yeah. Root exhibit, but and we did have a show in Austin fairly recently. Um, where we where we all came together, and then so probably next summer is when we'll have our next group. We're supposed to be, you know, there, there's a lot of interest. We're in, we're talking to Clark. You know, we, we like to oh, nice. exhibit at universities. We've been to a University of Arkansas where Delita was teaching. We've been at Texas Southern Museum, um, and so we're trying to go to Atlanta and see what happens. Hopefully, that will pan out. I think that's a that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. So back to your work specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I remember when I first met you. Other than the album covers, the hairscapes, yes. as I love to call them, good and name. I <laughs> and you know, every time I see a hair image of or send something, I me. send it to he you on Instagram yes, or in text or something like that. But can you talk a little bit about? the topics that your work touches on, especially in terms of the hair images, whether they be photographs or prints or your drawings. Yes, hair became the core subject of my work. It's been that for 10 plus years now. And, you know, I was raised in a hair salon, beauty shop. My mom is a retired beautician. And so ever since a very, very young age, I've watched my mom do hair. And when I was about junior high age, I I was working in the beauty shop. We had, it was before licensing and you Mm -hmm. had to have a special license to even touch somebody's head. I was a shampoo girl Mm -hmm. and every day after school and on weekends, other than Sundays and Mondays and Mondays are, you know, beauty shops are closed on Mondays, but I was in there. And so I learned the culture and my mom, when my dad got out of the military and they settled in Louisiana and DeRitter, my mom had a, the opportunity to open her own salon and we named it Hair International. And my mom wanted an environment where every woman from every background could get her hair done rather than it be separate. 
because we know, yeah, you know, if you know, there's white hair salons, there's black hair salons. Yeah. I, I go to Dominican shop to get a blowout, you know. So there's, but there's not a lot of race mixing within that, yeah. you know. And so her idea for her salon was to be very open, to also to include men. My mom was a licensed barber. So nice. she, and being near the army base, she was able to do that. But the one thing my mom couldn't do was braid. She didn't have the the, the dexterity in her hands to do the tight the tight braiding. Yeah. And I I've I braided. So yeah. every now and then I would come in and, and do a braid or something like that. And then all my friends, and then when it was prom, I would go in and do hair. So basically what I'm saying is like, I feel like I should earn a license to, to do hair. <laughs> in high school. I mean, excuse me, in, in college, it was my weekend gig. Alicia Keys made it very popular to have your hair oh, braided yeah. in the, you know, cornrows, very easy to do. So, um, on the weekends I would do that, make a little gas money. And again, it was not an interest of mine to go into that field. It was certainly not a focus of my artwork ever. So fast forward to living in here in Houston, I discovered uh, Ojakare, J.D. Ojakare, Nigerian photographer who photographed women. I believe the exhibit, when I have the book over there still, um, he, I think the work was on view at Blafford Gallery. For some reason, I'm remembering a connection to the work there. And I was actually reading Vibe magazine because, again, I have this connection to music. So I have this huge stack of Vibe magazines that I've collected over the years, a huge stack of spin magazines because I loved alternative music as well. And I flipped it open to this article and it had the back of his portrait, one of his portraits. And an article is about something else, but I was like, wow. The imagery just blew me away. And so I had researched him and he was basically documenting the other interests of mine these very traditional Nigerian hairstyles that represented very specific things. So one hairstyle, if you were going to get married or social mm -hmm. status, and they just yeah. communicated. And I thought back to like watching my mom create these sculptures, you know, so I looked <laughs> at hair always as sculptures. And I did as a precursor to that, do portraits of people, but always from the back. Yeah. So those two ideas even eventually merged together. And then I was like, well, I can't just draw Ojakare's beautiful photographs. Mm -hmm. I got to yeah. make these my own, you yeah. know? And so in the very beginning, they were just like snippets of his hairscapes. Yeah. You know, that was his vision. So then I just started using, because I was still braiding at the time, my own photographs and drawing from them. And then that was kind of how that ball started. To yeah. get rolling, yeah. So and, I, and then hair is just like the the one way we communicate our identity that can change. You know, the yeah. rest of our body stays the same, but hair this is this weird material that grows out of the top of our head. We can do whatever we want to with it to identify ourselves as certain things. You know, yeah. or we're not given permission to do that. We have yeah. to cover it up, or we can't wear our hair in a certain way because of the job we have. Or yeah. So there's a lot of politics involved <laughs> that I'm interested yeah. in. Yeah. As yeah. far as that's concerned, that's actually interesting. I just read that the Navy just gave Locks. the yeah, well, yeah. and other natural hairstyles, yeah. which is like their natural 
hairstyles. Like, I, what, what? I, I saw that. <laughs> of course. I saw I was all over it. So trust me. I saw the little sad poster of these profiles of women with the, and I, it. That's, that's interesting. Maybe that's where I, the interest also came from, knowing the that military. the military had these yeah. very, very rigid mm-hmm. hairstyles. You know, there was not yeah. a lot of expression. There's a uniform, yeah. and then there's a way to wear your hair, and I'm anti all of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm one that I don't like that children have to wear uniforms to school. I get it. I understand mm-hmm. why those rules were made, but I was like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't have to go to school and yeah. wear what you told me to wear. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's that, that. Yeah. It. There's a lot. Just. <laughs> a lot <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, there's power in hair. And yeah. Cu- and cutting it off and starting yeah. over. Yeah. You know, as so many of my girlfriends have, you know, gone from having relaxed hair to the natural hair, and that yeah. whole process of being thought that you look like a, like feeling like a completely different person yeah. being approached very differently by men uh, <laughs> on this you know it's just like that yeah. whole I was, like, I was mesmerized with this with this fiber you know, all of this is happening it's like whoa there's a lot of power yeah. in that and i felt like you know especially young black girls needed to see images of beauty that they don't see when they're flipping through magazines. Yeah. So when the images that I draw, I find beautiful. And that, sh- that there should be more images like that out there. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. There's, yeah, there's nothing for me to add to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've asked this question. I did a talk at Row Houses. And one of the other rounds was about like the access to products related yeah. to hair and, and how and some women don't have that access. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions I asked the audience was, at what point did you become self-aware of your beauty? Or mm-hmm. and, and in some cases, it was l- lack of beauty. They felt ugly. I got numbers like six years old. 12 years old and some I didn't think I was beautiful until I was 30 and it's just like all but what surprised me the most was these young num like these yeah. small numbers yeah. like why at six years old are you worried about your hair like that's not something you but this is happening right now you know yeah it, for sure yeah so positive imagery imagery is crucial very, very crucial. Has there been a topic that you found difficult to approach with your art that you have, but it was a difficult process? Um, probably the ones that are the most personal. Um, because I, I tend to work in generalized themes, mm-hmm. like maybe an image that doesn't represent necessarily a specific person, mm-hmm. but the idea okay. behind it. And when I turn the tables back onto myself and make the work about just me, mm-hmm. that's the scariest place for me. Mm-hmm. Is it a matter of vulnerability? I or? think so. And also, I don't think I'm that interesting. <laughs> 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 uh, I, I guess maybe to myself I do. Mm-hmm. And, and I hear the contrary when I talk about, you know, who I am and things. But it's like, oh, nobody wants to hear about like just my personal you know I'm, I'm weary about putting too much personal things out there like mm-hmm. I made my mom cry at my thesis show she was so embarrassed she broke down in tears and left oh, because wow. the work was so personal because I had, I had a very personal subject matter I mean I'm oh, at the time I was 35 years old I've done things in my <laughs> mom you know things have happened things have happened <laughs> and I just I just like really yeah. put myself out there 
And my dad was like super proud. That's my child. That's my daughter. <laughs> you know, he, I don't know if he really understood the meaning of these odds, but my mom did. And she was mortified. Mm-hmm. And she's yeah. like, I can't believe you went to school for three years. And this is what you're showing. So that to me was anytime it's something so personal, mm-hmm. I, I feel like, am I revealing too much? Am I going to offend my family? It's just like, I just, I can't, can't anymore, you know? worry about that it's just it's like artists are putting their lives out there and it's it's a vulnerable position so well that actually leads into another question that i have like uh when you're creating like how concerned are you with people's opinion of your work how does that affect the work that you create or does it affect the work that you create it it doesn't really anymore but of course it did. Yeah. And, and I just learned to be totally okay with the work that I have to do for myself. Mm-hmm. And I kind of go into making work as though this is not for anyone else to see. Yeah. If I don't tell myself that, then I won't take risk. If I make work based on the fact that I know it's going to be shown, yeah. then that kind of takes away a little bit. And I felt that pressure when I was represented by a gallery, mm. which has its, you know, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of the work they didn't take because they couldn't sell it. And those album covers that you were influenced by yeah. or that that you remember couldn't be sold. So there was like no chance for them at all to yeah. be, you know, taken into a gallery setting and, and sold. They didn't get it. Yeah. And that show was extremely personal to me. I put myself in every album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, all, it was yeah. just about me. It was <laughs> self-portrait kind of, you know? Yeah. And but that's not something that's gonna sell. So I felt like, oh, I need to make so I need to make work um, that maybe speaks, you know, to a collector or something. Like, and that just didn't feel like a very authentic place to come from. Yeah. So losing gallery representation, um, in my case, it was because unfortunately the gallery owner passed away very unexpectedly. Oh, wow. So I didn't have a bad experience. It didn't sever the relationship, and I probably would have stayed in that. Mm-hmm. Because it has its, it was it's a great safety net, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a, it's they do do great things for artists, and artists should seek gallery representation. Totally not against it, but it hasn't been a focus. Like I haven't like legitimized myself based on whether or not I have that, and I've just had the most for me artistic freedom not having that because you yeah. know nobody's out there is selling my work. I just yeah. make it, you know. Yeah. How much of, and this is, it's in direct response to what you just said, but it's a little off of our order, <laughs> but how much of those specific works, those album covers, how much of those not selling do you think can be attributed to the racial makeup of your gallerist? and clientele <laughs> I mean that's that's <laughs> <laughs> I mean just cause they didn't get the work they didn't understand it cause like I mean, for obvious reasons we'll, you know it's like yeah we'll make sure that the images are on the site of course, so because people need to see them. Because but I think that's a valid question. Because the reason that I became interested in this is one of my personal goals is I want to be an art collector. But when I go to certain shows, I don't feel a connection with the art for mm-hmm. artists who I don't feel 
I have a cultural connection to. So I tell people I love black art and that's the art that I'm drawn to because I feel like I get it. And if I don't get it, it just makes me look at blackness or um, my culture from a different perspective. Like, oh, okay. I never really thought someone's experience would be that way because it wasn't my experience, but there's still a connection there. And so I always wonder, it's like, well, would a white man walk in here and feel the same connection or would he not get it? And how does that like how does that what is the word um deter artists from creating if their goal is to sell their work yeah um that's a, such a load <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh because like at as an if i can put my educator hat on real quick my students don't go to museums because they don't relate to their work yeah that's that's yeah <laughs> You know, and they're like, why would the idea of going to the Manil sound fun mm-hmm. if I don't feel like that place was made for me? Yeah. Um, but it is. Mm-hmm. And you got to go. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't know what you're going to like. Yeah. But that feeling of not supposed that feeling of not like you're not supposed to be there that's the issue i have with it yes like the whole white cube is very intimidating to walk into and i and i think collectors or people who want to collect feel intimidated by that process because like is it possible to walk off the street into a gallery and just buy whatever you want not really like if they don't know who you are they may, they may not, not sell, sell to you. you. Yeah. And, and you can have all the money you you would need to purchase. I've witnessed this myself mm-hmm. where, sorry, uh, I, a friend of mine who's married to a basketball player had the money and they just, they have no idea who you are. They've never seen you before. Yeah. They want to protect the work in the sense that it has to go to the right place. You know, yeah. it's going to accrue value if it's in the, if it's in a collection of other works that have value. Mm-hmm. So it depends on like the type of gallerist yeah. you're working with too. It's like, are they just there to make money? Then they'll sell you anything. Or are they, you know, focused on, and that's the name of the game, like the game of art and art's value is, is kind of tricky. But I think we need to encourage our young ones to go into those spaces yeah. because there's no rule that says it's not for you. You yeah. have to go in those spaces. I did a piece called five mics. It was bad, <laughs> as in bad, not as in good, <laughs> but I, I was, you know, source magazine ranks. I used to rank albums based on mics and it was a five mic album. This was the anniversary year. I think of Nas, it was something when I was like, oh, I'm going to do a tribute to the whole, the idea of our ranking system, mm-hmm. our five yeah. mic ranking system. So I drew these, the five mics on five different canvases. Again, this was a, not a great painting, but. <laughs> and then, you know, the professors come in there and they're like, what is this? The Jackson five? <laughs> oh my God. I kid you not. And I was like, oh, it just clicked. Okay. <laughs> I was like, how do they get <laughs> I see it now. Five microphones. Why wouldn't it? Oh, oh like, my God. I was like, no. Don't you know what five mics represents? Like, yeah. And I had to tell them. They were like, no one would get that looking at your work. I was like, no, you don't get that yeah. looking at my work. And they're yeah. like, well, no one in a gallery would get that looking yeah. at this work. And I'm like, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. That is the problem. That is like, the problem. Everyone I know would get that. Yeah, it's you know, it's not made for you. Well, that's interesting because in Houston, I've seen, I've been able to see thanks to, uh, I'd say the guys over at Tipping Point, um, yeah, 
because they they bring everybody together. Like that's a place where everybody shows up, mm-hmm. right? And it's like these guys that do day trading, uh, they show up to tipping point and they know every song that's being played. So like they would yeah. definitely purchase that music. Yeah. And you know, these are guys that grew up in River Oaks and Bel Air. Not the guys that grew up, you know, South Park and, and, and Fifth Ward and things like that. So it's like, it, it's a place where everybody's coming together, but those are the people that need to be able to walk into the gallery. Yeah. And some of them may be able to, but not enough. We need to give them verbal permission. Like, they yeah. give us permission. Yeah. We need to communicate some, that somehow better. And your podcast is attempting to do that, right? Yes. And yes, there's exactly. other programs that I've been involved in. The Collectors Club with Row Houses, trying to get people to realize that you don't have to be a millionaire to start collecting no. art. You start right now. You mm-hmm. start, you can barter, you can trade. Yeah. You know, I'm an artist. Do something for me. I'll trade you work. Yeah. You know, 30, that's how collectors started. Mm-hmm. I, I've been to homes of collectors where they do like these viewing parties. You pay a fee and you can walk into their, their house and look at yeah. their work. I've walked into someone's house and they, when they heard my name, they're like, we have one of your pieces. Oh, wow. Oh, that's dope. <laughs> How did that feel? It was very weird because I'm like, I don't know you. <laughs> I didn't sell you my, and I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. They were like, no, we have your Adam, your Adam piece. Hmm. And I was like, really? They're like, it's in our hall. And so, so they have these really big house and th- this beautiful stairwell is an amazing house and right in the center of the stairwell was my drawing of adam from my adam and eve series wow. i hadn't seen that i think i did that in 2007 wow i hadn't seen that in years and i did not know these people purchased this piece. <laughs> i had wow. no idea it was so it's it was weird it was very was, intimate <laughs> Yeah, but it was also, it upset me a little bit. Like, why don't I know you? Why yeah. don't I know you? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, who sold you this piece? Because I didn't sell it. It got sold, but not to them. Yeah. Like, I know who bought it, but how yeah. did that exchange happen? So I am I was happy. Like, oh, okay, great. My artwork is in an amazing collection. Mm-hmm. But, like, the collector. So, basically, let me backtrack. What I was saying is that that's a great story. He was saying he when he was young he bought an Andy Warhol print for $30 yeah it was in his living room because he gave us a tour it was amazing beautiful collection he, so he told us a story of yeah I, I paid $30 for that because at the time Andy Warhol what was probably still alive yeah. and it had you know and $30 is he's like I kicked myself. I should have probably bought five of those mm-hmm. you know because they were they were absolutely <laughs> so collect now you know yeah. but it's it's an we don't even know how to get to the artwork. We don't even know how to get yeah. to it. Yeah. It, but that's, if we don't even feel comfortable going into a gallery space or a museum because yeah. we can't make a connection. Why would we think we should buy it? Yeah. But we're spending money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, like you said, that is what this podcast is attempting to do. Give people that permission to co- maybe even contact artists. Like slide in DMs. Hey, I saw this piece on your page. How much is it? I want to buy it. I would totally like, <laughs> started doing that and i've been blown away I'm like oh my god this artist that i've put on this pedestal is like yeah i'll make another one yeah. for you because i've sold and i'm like it's that simple it's because but artists yeah. are not the elitists mm-hmm. no it's everyone no. else it's always yeah. we're humble that you even yeah want to talk I, i'm humble you even want to talk to me mm-hmm. that you want yeah. to interview me 
or that you want one of my works anytime no matter who it is mm-hmm. if it's somebody way up here yeah. or, or somebody yeah. i don't know yeah. it's like wow i attribute it to like what it must be like if you hear your song on the radio mm-hmm. that that feeling or maybe yeah. your song makes it to number one you know a lot of people like it it's a very it's an amazing feeling but you're it's always still surprising yeah and i think it should be to keep you humble yeah you know i mean it's it's funny like you said the artists are not the elitist and just a quick rant the artists are the people yeah. right so the work is of the people yeah. but then it goes into these like you said white cubes and it seems untouchable the kids who can benefit from seeing these things themselves represented in these ways seeing their stories told they can't see them told because they're behind these walls where if they walk in they get stared at or security follows them or the police get called on them like that's ridiculous or it's in a completely different part of town mm-hmm. right so because of that i say hey shout out row houses right yeah because it's it's right, right in the city and like, it's right there people don't know and don't come they yeah live right here yeah I love row houses yeah and even the even the 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 more progressive galleries still aren't in the area right so if you're a kid who wants to see these representations or a parent who wants to show your kid these representations it's hard to kind of break into that circle to find out where that work is being shown Look, like, <laughs> and, and I, I have to show jay-z's video picasso baby i have to show drake's video hotline bling like to teach my students that there's a terrell piece at the mfa mm-hmm. if i just show yeah. them terrell's work and say you know this artist works with light it's an experience, you know, we, we, we have a tunnel mm-hmm. at the MFA. You should go and check it out. Yeah. No one's going to go check that out. But when we went to the museum and I showed them the Hotline Bling video that was influenced by Terrell, they were all in yeah. the tunnel. That's what they wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They made a connection. They yeah. made a connection. And that's what we have to do in order to mm-hmm. get people in. Jay-Z's video for Picasso Baby. First, I show them Marina Abramovich, and she's a performance artist who does the staring thing, and it's, it's called um, Being in the Moment. I, yeah. I forget the name of it exactly, but... Um, and they I watched the hate documentary, it. It's great. It's great. I love yeah, it. It's I love, great. And my students hate it. They're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Why are these people crying? They're yeah. just sitting in front of her. Yeah. You know, and they, they kind of get it after we talk about it. But then when they watch Jay-Z's video and she's in the video and now they understand why they're staring at each other, they've made a connection. They've mm-hmm. solved this little mystery. And yeah. then we point out the other, the, Nicolene Thomas is in the yeah. video, Kehinde Wiley's in the video, yeah. Wangechi Mutu, you know, all these other artists, all of a sudden now their interests are peaked. Yeah. You know, if you look at the background of the set of Empire, Okay, mm-hmm. Wiley, you know, on Blackish, yeah. you have Fahamu Piku's work. Oh, but, God, I yeah, stuff. right. But <laughs> I have to show the, the TV set first in yeah. order to really get that, like, to yeah. pull them in. So, I actually, like, where we are now, as far as like music kind of integrating mm-hmm. with, and you mentioned something about everybody wants to use the crown and be like the Basquiat thing. Yeah. But, you know, at least we're starting to see some other artists. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, it, other artists and living artists yeah because as much as i am a basquiat fan as much as i am a fan of many artists that are gone i think 
like now is the time where we're actually celebrating our living artists and that's a really exciting thing yeah. like i i feel like it wasn't really that way for a long time and just period going back to maybe the renaissance like when artists were the people that like they were part of the elite right yeah and like they were your stars yeah they were you didn't have well they they were your superheroes they yeah. were your stars they were they were the it people and that has totally gone like artists aren't they're cool but they're not athletes and pop star yeah. cool you yeah. know what i mean like everybody thinks it's oh, i have a cool friend he's an artist we say that all yeah. the time but on a on like a a larger scale yeah. like, I, I can't get them to name I tell them to name four artists and then I project a slide with like Da Vinci Picasso Michelangelo's name I'm like yeah. this is one of the artists you chose scratch it out and everybody's like <laughs> I don't have any artists left like, that's a shame yeah. Living or they can't name any living artists. Yeah. Even when they're in rap songs, he still breeze right past them. Like Hebrew Brantley's in like seven different songs and they're like, Who? Yeah, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Coons balloons I wanna blow up. You yeah. get it? Yeah. Like, oh, that's who that is? I'm like, Yeah. Yes, yeah. Making- it's the same with my students. When I point out like Chance the rapper said he wants a room full of Hebrew Brantley's, that's an artist from Chicago. Ah. Use Google for that. And yeah. you're like Oh, okay, okay, okay. I'm like, listen a little closer. Yeah, like at least, at least. Um, (laughs) So to try and get us back on track, uh, (laughs) what is your personal mantra for creating? Oh my! (laughs) Fun fact: When I do go to exhibits and I get to meet the artists. That is the question that I always go to. <laughs> what is your mantra for your creating? Your personal mantra for creating. Um, I, I think I have to go back to what I'm telling myself as I'm making something mm-hmm. is like, do this like nobody's watching. Oh, that sounds so cliche, but I have to tell myself like, <laughs> nobody's going to see this. Okay. Yeah. Nobody's going to see this. And when I, when I tell myself that, then... I, I can like I'm camera shy. I have that performance anxiety we're talking yeah. about. If you put a camera in my face, I don't know who I turn into, <laughs> but it is the most boring person on the planet. I don't even look like myself. And yeah. I just it just I just crumble. I just crumble. I wanted to be a musician. I was playing this played the saxophone, the violin, and the piano. I could not perform. And I have I'm not a like I'm pretty outgoing like yeah. I, I have no problem speaking in public it's just something about the performance part of it and a lot of art making is performance like i couldn't even have the both of you in here and watch me draw no that's an intimate thing that's i just i would just be like what is that Ner- what's the word you taught me Ner- nervous oh uh, <laughs> it'd be a nervousing experience it would be a, such a nervousing experience i would not be able to to do anything and i know i, I you know i have com- a confidence in my drawing skills but yeah. i they just like yeah so maybe my my personal mantra would be like nobody's watching if i had to come up with one that's an excellent question <laughs> so when do you know uh, a work is complete when i'm sick of it <laughs> you kind of just know mm-hmm. you kind of just know over time 
Because uh, I think a young Rebea would overwork things or not finish. Mm. Mark. <laughs> that is that is current, uh, the, Mark. The, 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 <laughs> I, if you deem something unfinished, uh, you already know, right? Or, yeah. or are you being so hard on yourself? And that's why group critiques are important. Sometimes yeah. it takes other people to tell you that you're finished. Mm-hmm. And so I'm totally open to that. But as far as me knowing myself, it's kind of just, you know. It's, a, it's just yeah. this feeling of calm and like okay that's that's my gauge i can feel it yeah okay what's your favorite media to use to work in uh black prismacolor pencil <laughs> i have about a thousand little nubs that won't fit in the pencil sharpener anymore and for some reason i still think they're of use do you have the prisma extender yes uh, I do, but it won't fit in the pencil sharpener, so I still. But I guess I could do the little hand one. Yeah. But I'm very picky. I like the point of my Prismacolor to be long and very pointy, and I only use them. Like I have about two or three in my hand at a time, and so I'll make a few lines and then I'll switch. Make a few lines and I'll switch. So they're always sharp. Yeah, they have to be like super sharp. But that's my favorite medium, because it's it's a richer black than with graphite. Yeah. It's not as messy as charcoal. I have more control. When I'm doing line drawings, that's my favorite. That's yeah. all I ever use. Yeah. Unless I use color, but it'll still be color pencil. Prismas are so versatile and people don't even realize it a lot of times. Yeah. And it, it looks like, like graphite. It's <laughs> yeah. just, you know, I don't like doing the super blendy, high schooly prisma. I hated them for a long time yeah. until I was like, I need a rich black that won't smear when my hand drags across the page. Yeah. And it was kind of like, that's the reason I started working with Prismacolor. And I was like, wow, this is giving me the exact sort of rich black that I want. Yeah. And I just never went back to graphite after yeah. that. The other thing is you can't erase it. So you have to be committed. Uh-huh. There's no erasing Prismacolor. <laughs> it's like working Don't in pen. Don't let them fool you. Yeah. you want, yeah, the pens with the eraser on the end. What? Yeah. Why? Why? It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst invention on the planet. It never works. It's great marketing though, like, <laughs> but it's a fallacy for sure. Definitely. <laughs> Let's talk about your role as a curator. So I just recently kind of better understood what an art curator's role is, but I'd like to hear in your words, what's the responsibility of an art curator? Uh, yes, definitely. The responsibility of the curator is to step out of the way of the artistic process, let the artists take care of that and not influence that whatsoever. And then their job is to place it in a public space to where the viewer experiences the work in its best role. So the responsibility is huge. What curating is not is putting a bunch of work together and hanging it on a wall a certain amount of inches apart. Okay. And I learned that, and, and, and part of me wanting to curate the last exhibit that I did, uh, I curated the Mama exhibit for India Lovejoy at the Union, mm-hmm. which was probably my, I, I call it my first, my my curatorial debut, if you will. Um, I, I see so many spaces that aren't curated well and it really just looks like oh this artist has a bunch of work and put it here this artist has a bunch of work and put it here but there's no experience as you walk through the room and so i think a a curator's job is to make sure they have the responsibility of showing the work the way it was intended and to get the best meaning out of it um and to to let the artists like 
to give them their space. Do you have a, a process that you go through when picking artists when you're, when you're serving as a curator? Yes, I do. It depends on what the intention of the show is. For example, you know, you have guidelines. If someone else gives them to you, like this, I knew that this exhibit would feature only women. Um, so that's broad. <laughs> and, and so I thought, like, what, what would make this show important for me? showing exhibiting women well I wanted to make the show very diverse and I didn't want it in the in the sense that we think of diversity having it racially diverse because that's a given mm-hmm. I'm gonna that's me anyway mm-hmm. um, but also diverse in age range and having more mature artists and then I, I feel a connection to younger artists we have to bring them up with us we have to give them opportunities as well so I wanted to make sure I had a, a fresh young artist some Mid, I wouldn't say mid-career because that ha- does have a very specific meaning, but artists that have ex- more experience exhibiting, maybe galleries and things like that, and then ones that are a little bit more established that have you know a long history of exhibiting. And putting those in the same space, but also working with different media, um, photography, uh, printmaking, sculpture, because then those have different audiences, and I wanted to bring those audiences together. So again, back to your question, like how do you how do you pick? It kind of depends on the the space, the theme of the show, and then you know the, what the focus of the exhibit is. It's gonna, works on paper, or is it just painting? Yeah. that dictates where you start looking. How did your curatorial process differ from your? creative process it's it's actually very similar because as far as the the creative process you research i'm a big researcher curators have to research they have to know their artists you know and then the second thing is you categorize um you document and then you display and so it's very similar to the creative process where you and you make things you know, you're making the space technically out of the work that you've curated. So an artist does the same thing with the exception of the influence. So like I said, a curator doesn't influence, like you should never tell the artist what their work is supposed to look like. Yeah. Or have, you know, that's completely not appropriate. (laughs) As the artist creating the work, I'm, I'm making the object. So, but it's actually, I thought it was very similar. Um, Actually, I think you kind of answered this a little bit, but uh, when you're curate when you're curating, uh, what are the things that you consider when selecting the artists? Content. I have to like the work. Yeah. I don't select artists based on whether I know them. I could care less. Mm-hmm. You know, I looked at in, in this case artists who who I felt like work was so good but just underrepresented. And what makes a work good to me is if it's craftsmanship is a huge thing. Um, the, the content and if the idea is fresh, the originality, it's one of those things where I know it when I see it. Yeah. I know it when I see it. So it's, you know, something fresh, something new, or just something done well, even if I have seen it before. But just like that craftsmanship, I cannot say more about that. Like taking... Yeah care of every aspect of your work is important and also how serious the artist is you know artists have to learn that they have to be they should be easy to work with (laughs) that whole i can be late because i'm an artist thing that doesn't work it's dumb 
it, you're <laughs> shooting yourself in the foot. It does, people don't want to work with you if you're hard to work with and you're, you're losing out on a lot of opportunities. Yeah. Being on time, turning in work on time, picking it up on time, submitting the correct information on time. Like the worst part about being a curator is the organizing everybody's personality. Like mm -hmm. if artists just realize that this is a professional experience. And if I don't have that with you and your work is okay or even great, I don't want to work with you. Understandable. <laughs> yeah, work ethic is a big thing. Yeah. yeah. So are you usually, do you, are you starting completely from selecting the artist and selecting the venue or are you usually working with the directors of galleries and things like that? Well, I don't have a lot of curatorial experience as far as curating something from the ground up myself. Okay. I have the experience of uh, working at a gallery for a year at the college where I work at. Um, so some of the work, well, no, all of the artists were already selected. Okay. My job was then to choose the work. For a particular show. And yeah, and okay. place it in the space. So part of the curator is, of course, to select the artist, but that may not always be the case. It may be selected for you, you yeah. know, based on where you work or what, where, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And they're just ask you, you know, like curate the work. You have to curate yourself. You know, I have to curate my own work when I'm exhibiting like what to take out and, and yeah. what to put in. So this, the space does dictate a lot of that. Um, what was the question? <laughs> um, like, are you selecting the venues or are you working with people that already have venues? Yeah. So like when we curate for the Rue exhibit, our Rue exhibits, we select the venues. We try, but we want to show in different spaces. Yeah. So we might approach. That's a very common thing. We, we, we might approach or we might get approached. Um, a lot of it happens very organically. That's why interpersonal relationships are so important. That's why your reputation as being kind and easy to work with is important because people yeah. want to work with those people. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, granted, sure. your work has to be good. That is already a given. Absolutely. But you know, like people tend to want to work with you if they know that it's you know that you're professional. Mm -hmm. And so the spaces can vary. A lot of times, as Rue, we seek out where we want to show because we want to expand. We want to not always revisit the same spaces. Yeah. yeah, it can really. It's all over the place. What's the current art trend? that you're most excited about right now or intrigued by? Performance. Performance art? Yeah. Can you explain what performance art is? Sure. You <laughs> use the body and you do a bunch of weird things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's a new, it's an area that I'm not an expert in by any means. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably why it's intriguing to me yeah. right now. Yeah. And it's my connection with Diverse Works. I'm on the artist board there and they're very performance oriented. So it's just the exposure to the performances. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, because it really is about using your body as the medium. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and me having this performance anxiety, I admire someone who's using their body in creating this experience. Yeah. There's it's. This temporal media, it happens over time. There's a beginning, middle, and end. Mm -hmm. And I'll admit, I've been to some performances that I've, made me feel uncomfortable and awkward. Yeah. But it's probably because I didn't understand what was going on. And I like that. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. So right now, that's the trend that I'm kind of like looking looking towards for just, I guess, um, 
stimulation or mo- motivation to make work. I'm not saying I want to. Yeah. Be, do <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's and I don't really. I wouldn't call it. Also, I wouldn't call it a trend. Okay. Um, because performance has been around mm-hmm. yeah. for a while, for but I guess time, to me yeah. it kind of feels like I see a lot of artists blending music and performance. And yeah. I feel like that might be the trend that, that I'm intrigued by right now. That's actually funny because we just we told you earlier off off the mic that uh, we ran into Autumn Knight. Yeah, who it, that was actually my first experience. Uh, with performance art back when Diverse Works, I was actually on the artist board at that time. They did State Fair and Autumn had a, uh, she had a section there where it was The Doctor Is In and it was uh, a play on psychology mm-hmm. and uh, it was very interesting. I don't want to butcher what it was all about, but I think I, I remember that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. She's a great example yeah. of like just knowing her <laughs> and watching her throughout the years. That was enough like, wow. And her Lisa Harris too, yeah. you know, just her singing ability, but she's turning it into these performance art, mm-hmm. art performances, not just like yeah. singing on a stage, which is what she's amazing at. Uh-huh. But, and then I have others, uh, other friends that are musicians that are incorporating performance with their sound or projections and those kinds of things so i I like that because it's not an area that i like i know about so it's refreshing for me to focus on that i wish i knew more i'm learning Mm -hmm. going to more performances and just like watching how similar they are process wise yeah (laughs) to the work that i make you know yeah and then they tend to be it there's something about it that even if you don't even if it's not really your thing you're you feel it one way or another you're going to feel it if you're in there in that experience it may not be a positive feeling (laughs) (laughs) but you're gonna feel it some way yeah or i'm frustrated like yeah i'm mad because i don't get this yeah yeah but at least i'm feeling something yeah but i love that you brought up marina abramovich and oh my god the artist is in like that was uh, that i thought it was gonna be dumb I thought it was going to be so stupid. And then when her, and for those of you that haven't seen it, basically Marina is sitting at a table and people are able to come and sit in front of her and they look at one another in silence. (laughs) And it sounds silly, but as you watch the documentary, you you get wrapped up in it because she's talking about it. She's actually explaining exactly what everything is. And then the culmination of it was when her ex lover came and sat in front of her and all these other people had broken into tears and you could see that they had this visceral response, but that's when she broke down and it was like, there's something about that moment, that, that pure moment where you see the emotion overtake her. That you're just like, oh my god! I don't know if this is awkward, if this is touching, if this like it's it's so so many things. When is the last time you have sat across from someone and not spoken and just stared them in the eye? Like, haven't even done that with my wife. Yeah, (laughs) I've only done it with my therapist. (laughs) Wasted a whole session. It's therapeutic. Yeah. Um, and cathartic. It like, is. It's, it's, and, it's, and it's also extremely difficult oh, and yes. vulnerable. But like, we're human. Yeah. 
and we don't even interact by looking at each other anymore. It's just everything is so fast, blah, 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 you know. And so again, it does, that performance doesn't reach everyone, but I think I would have been caught up in that energy had yeah. I sat across from her mm-hmm. and, and done that. It's just, it was completely overwhelming. Yeah. And I had, I've had to sit across from someone and do that. And I've made people do that. Like, and it's, it's a, it strikes up an interesting conversation about intimacy and also just being in the moment, which yeah. we don't do enough. Yeah. I think I'm actually going to do that with my students this year. I think you should. I think I should. I think we, we're going to do a unit on performance art. Yeah. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to get weird. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're going to get weird. <laughs> I think it's great. You should. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, um, <laughs> is there an art piece in your personal collection that you're most proud of? That I've done or that I own? Either. Well, both. (laughs) Both. Yeah. That's a great question. I I have so many pieces in in my home that I love, which is why I have them hanging in my home. Yeah. Um, Everything else outside of the house is for sale. Mm -hmm. It always is. And I don't don't really have a bunch of my own stuff hanging up by any means. Uh, A couple of things. But I think... Oh, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. That's, <laughs> I have so many special pieces, and I'm trying to think of maybe. So I have like my bathrooms dedicated to women, mm-hmm. and so I have a photography that I've traded or acquired of that women as women as subject. So that's a special place for me. I, I love looking at those images every yeah. day, and then um, I'm real big into color because I think color, you know, can set the mood. So I have this big huge dumb orange painting that I did just you know it's abstract there's just nothing on it just this orange color but I see it first thing when I walk in my home and it just makes me feel good mm-hmm. so I think I get different things from different pieces okay. yeah and I can't think of one necessarily that stands out to me that's fair that is <laughs> that's yeah. fair thank you that's fair I mean because when you think about it like I think as people begin to collect, like, yeah, there's that marquee piece that you might want. Like, I really want, like, if I had a Carrie James Marshall, yeah. I don't care what the hell it is. It's a Carrie <laughs> James Marshall. Like, but part of that is my admiration for his subject matter and his style. Of course. Because it feels like, like his work is like the 60 year old me in my mind. So it's. <laughs> well, I, I have to- Cool. So I have like the. Do you remember when Odebenga Jones um, made it into the Whitney Biennial? That yeah. Was, an all male collective is Jamal Cyrus, Kenya Evans, Jabari Anderson, and Robert Pruitt. Yeah. And when they got accepted into the Whitney Biennial, it was a huge thing. Yeah. You know, these, these young artists all from Houston. And so they did this little commemorative poster, just a little black and white poster. It's like a, a comic. Yeah. And I don't even remember how I got that, but I have that and I have it framed. So that, that's, that's, that's yeah, that's, that's really, that's, that's one that I, I cherish. I have to tell Robert that I still have that. That actually reminds that. me of the, I walked into the MFA one day, didn't know what was happening. It's all this artwork from Houston artists, like people that I have like sat down and cracked jokes with. And it was the craziest damn thing. Like it was Houston beautiful. collects. 
Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like the that, Adam piece that I was talking about is in that. Yeah, that like I, I'm seeing all these people work that like my friends, like people that I like, hey, what up, man? What's going on? Yeah. And it's like, yo, they're in the MF. <laughs> like this is the museum here in Houston. Like that's crazy. Mm-hmm. One, because you never blow in your own backyard. <laughs> you never blow in your own backyard. Mm-hmm. So to see like, and, and I think Houston is very good about appreciating people when it's really, really time. Like, okay, cool. You've made it. We're going to celebrate you. I think Houston's really good about that, but we're not good about celebrating on the way up. Yeah. So to see that show and to know that everybody in that show wasn't like, everybody not balling. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know, it, it, everybody is not at the point where they can just do one thing and then vacation in San Tropez or something like that. Like, that's not the yeah. case. So that was like astonishing to me. So I can There was a Basquiat that. piece yeah. in that exhibit. Yeah. I have the catalog yeah. still. There was, I wonder if Carrie James Marshall was in that in that show I don't know maybe it was Whitfield Lovell it was one of those but anyway it's an amazing established artist but then it was dope it was dope it was dope your friends you know exactly I did think of one little piece that I'm very proud of having and that is the ticket stub to Boys in the Hood from the movie (laughs) that was part of my thesis show that I put in there and just to have that and look at it and I think the the price was like it was like three something for a that was part of your row house too if i'm not mistaken no it was it was at it was my mfa show upstairs i okay I, yeah one of the specimen collection. okay 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 first yeah, time yeah, yeah. objects okay. and it was the first time african-american i think won best uh screenwriting and oscar for mm-hmm. that so that kind of fit into the first time yeah. objects yeah man what triggers memories is what I think is great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I I agree. And that's why I'm I'm happy that I have a good memory. Like You have an excellent memory. And, <laughs> you remember Pat personality. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the thing is, like, I am absolutely a visual person. So much so that and I am not saying for people not to read. But I'm a consumer of knowledge, but I don't read a lot because when I read, I don't absorb the information as well. But if I know I'm reading for a purpose, I won't remember that until we start having the conversation. And then it triggers everything and I can see the page. And it's <laughs> so I, it's a crazy thing. Look, I relate so well to that because part of my morning routine is reading. Mm-hmm. Oh, Right? <laughs> Because I don't read. Now, I'm not saying I'm reading for two and three hours. It might be one chapter. Yeah. But I feel so ashamed that I'm not, I don't consider myself a well-read person. Now, I read books that I have to read for work or to study or when I'm researching. But just like the act of like reading instead of watching television. Yeah. That kind of thing is like, I was like, I have to make this part of my daily life. I have to read because... I don't naturally gravitate towards it. Like I'll fall asleep, I'll get tired. I'm like, I'll oh fall my asleep. god! But, Every time, you know, reading is <laughs> so time. important. It's it a is. stack it of books is. that I'm trying to get through right now. I'm inching through them. Reading is important. I think the the desire to consume knowledge is more important though, because reading is only one way of getting yeah. information. Yeah. Right? The experience. Like, is, mm-hmm. I think it, the most. Oh important. my god! Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean. 
as an art history minor, like reading was the bane of my existence. Same here. Especially for like video art classes, which video art, I'm sorry if you're a video artist out there, I hate your work. Uh, <laughs> it's the weirdest stuff ever. But reading, like we had to read, uh, we would have to read philosophy that went along with the video that was unrelated. Yeah. And I don't know how many people out there have read Kant or Derrida. Oh my God. I, 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 I can, I can, I can make this. I can, I can one up you. I had to read Goethe Faust in German. <laughs> and I was the only student in my German class. So I took German as so my, my minor in college. Oh my God. And in order to graduate, I had to take this last class mm -hmm. and I was the only student in the class. So there you go. I don't feel sorry for you because you had to read your. Yeah, no, you win. <laughs> you, <laughs> you win slash lose. German. Like in German. What? And the only student in class. So and you'd I be found out. I cheat off of anybody if yeah. I wanted. It was just me. Oh terrible and great at the same time. But <laughs> maybe that's what traumatized me. The reason why I don't read like I should. But I'm, I'm trying to get back. It's just I'm overwhelmed with what I want to read. I'm only talking about the books that I own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I bought that. I need to read it. <laughs> That's hilarious. So I think we only have two more questions for yeah. you. Okay. One, what accomplishment are you most proud of as an artist? Oh, you have so many. Be, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, that CV is long. Being able to exhibit, I went when I I had these, I had very small dreams coming up, and when when I moved to Houston and I saw or I walked into my first like legit gallery, just like wow, what must it feel like to yes. have enough work mm -hmm. to put in one show? You know, like I couldn't even imagine. And I kept visualizing a big visualizer. Yeah, and so. One of the things, um, I, I got on the phone with Michael Ray Charles, who is, <laughs> oh he God. doesn't know it, but he's my mentor and my best friend in my head. And I, we were on the phone. I was a young student about to enter grad school and moving to Houston. And actually, I may not have even gotten accepted yet. But for whatever reason, I found myself on the phone with him and he gave me a list of places and people to meet and things to to do and see here in Houston. Yeah. And I found that list years later because I keep everything. Mm -hmm. I'm not a hoarder, but I do keep like yes. that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And on the list was like Robert Pruitt, Rick Lowe, Project Row Houses, Art League, all of these spaces and people that I consider like friends now. Mm -hmm. I didn't even, it wasn't like I had a checklist. I had the checklist, but yeah. I lost it. But so I'm very proud of accomplishing just any little thing, just like the uh, being able to exhibit. Like I just did not even think it was, it was possible for someone like me. I didn't have any help in high school to go to college. I, I entered it much later. And then after that, I was like, oh, I'll never go to grad school. Like yeah. I, that's not who I am. Just get a job and work. And then just to have like, no, like I want this. Yeah. Like, and then just to be able to come here in Houston was just so, and just embraced me and just, and having a full-time job. 
I'm thankful for that every single day. Mm -hmm. Every single day. So my last question, well, our last question, and it's a question that's, I, I love this question. And I think about this question all the time and I have not yet been able to answer it. Um, what legacy do you want to leave? When we read about Rabia in the art history books, what do you want those art students who are like, oh, art history? What do you want them to remember? <laughs> oh. Hmm. Why did you throw that on my lap? That's a big one. I, okay, if I was reading an art history book and I saw one of my images, what would I want? Oh my gosh. What my that gosh that that she gave visibility to things that were not given visibility enough at the time I think that's what I would, I would want my work to represent the visibility of stories that aren't told in history books mm -hmm. you know my project on Placés and well these are the circassian women i'm sorry it's my wall um the story of plassage women this is a story of louisiana creoles that were groomed to become wives lovers whatever the case may be to the europeans that came just like there's so much history mm -hmm. yeah that you don't read about in your school books that i've feel the responsibility to tell through my work yeah and so i think that would be the legacy i'd want to leave behind like the discovery of stories that wouldn't see in another place sounds good to me i was gonna say that's a great answer to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. so, sounds good Let's to manifest me manifest that yeah, <laughs> podcast is for it to be as good for artists as it is for the lay person as good for the gallerist as it is for the lay person yeah. as good for academia as it is for the lay person and i think today is a, a, a prime example of that value um you've given so much <laughs> in this Wonderful in this time that we've been thank here you. well thank you thank you um, and and thank you for your time seriously Absolutely. seriously oh my god seriously um we will we will definitely have to talk more for sure anytime um, <laughs> i'm telling you don't be like demystify whatever your thoughts are about yeah. artists being oh unapproachable god. yeah we're so not it's maybe just the lack of access mm -hmm. to artists is maybe one thing, but now we have social media yeah. and I, I would I adore anybody that would just need, want to know anything or, you know, it's just, and, and everyone that I know wants that. Yeah. All right. So thank you thank to Rebea Bain. And on behalf of Raquel Simone and myself, <laughs> Mark Francis, Thank you for listening and peace. Peace.